started asking a question. Oh, got to got to wait. You you have to. Um, you you started asking a question that has to do with basically um, a restatement of the question is who am I? Yes. Okay. And that you mentioned that you recognize that often who you are is just repeating something that you picked up from somebody else. Yes. That's a good realization. Because that's going to help you unravel. The fact that um, there is no reason to try to figure out who you are because that's always a moving target. Okay. And not only that, but it's a moving target in the sense that it pops up in one form and then disappears completely. And then it pops up in another form later in a completely different form. Mm -hmm. And the human being, uh, let us say that the way that uh, the better part of our mind uh, processes things is is that a lot of people uh, talk about that uh, that they want to know the truth that they're truth seekers that they want to know but basically the human mind is not a truth finding machine it wasn't ever designed to be a truth finding machine that in fact any designing that it had was designed to uh, manage in the situation that it found itself in because the whole point of uh, the deeper level of the DNA um, is based in instinct and there's the instinct for survival. Okay, that instinct for, for survival then manifests itself in other things that are so deeply buried and close to that survival instinct that we call those instincts also. And that one of them that is so primary is the nesting instinct or the herding instinct. What this is actually pointing at is, is that we are not necessarily so much of an individual as we are a piece or a part or a member of a herd. that very, very few people um, at any particular point in time, probably less than 1% of the people are in isolation. That the 99% are in community with one another, unfortunately, not getting along very well. But at least we're in this together. And that and that's what human society is really all about. Is uh, a great big overall manifestation of the nesting instinct of going along to get along and that we learn how to survive in that herd or in that uh, uh, tribe or in that community by following the leader and doing what we're told to do. We have to learn the rules of the group, house rules. Okay, 
you could you could say then that the Ten Commandments is nothing but a set of house rules. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can also say that the Buddhist precepts are nothing but a set of house rules. You can stay in our house if you follow the rules. Okay. And if you leave this house, it may be very dangerous. That in fact, at one time, if you were a puppy in a, um, a pack of wolves and um, there was danger in the neighborhood, but you were a puppy who was um, just yelping and yelping and loud and making a whole lot of noise and nobody in the nest wanted you to be loud, you might get killed in order to get quiet. Yes. Because your mouth is endangering the entire pack. Okay, this happens with monkeys. It happens with all kinds of, of things that in fact, uh, that instinctual thing is what gives rise to the whole concept of a scapegoat. Of less pin the problems on some member of the group and then throw him out of the group and then our problems are solved. Okay. And um, that actually um, winds up inside of families that often family therapy is identifying uh, or uh, the therapist's job is to identify who in the family that has already been identified by the family as the problem child. Okay, they're blaming someone on it so that they can uh, fix that kid or get rid of him and then uh, the family is uh, back into unity or harmony again and by doing so we recognize that all oh, the scapegoat doesn't get rid of the problems at all that that's a, a stupid solution uh, but um, we can also see where uh, instinct and instinctual behavior like that actually gives rise then to animal sacrifices and all kinds of weird things that religions have done is we're trying to fix things uh, within the community by um, identifying one group. So everybody else in the group then wants to go along and get along. I want to be a member of this group. That's instinctual built into the minds of each one of us. That's why we are so gullible to the influences from other people. This is actually then the basis for gossip and um, all kinds of other activities that humans um, go along with in order to help to decide and define what is the tribe and what is uh, the sub tribe and this is our clique and you belong in our group because you follow our rules and when you're not following our rules you're out of the group. Now at one time in deep history long long ago getting thrown out of the group was downright deadly downright dangerous but it's it stuck in us in the sense of instinctual because it worked it kept the species itself alive but what it also gave rise to is the concept of if the group itself is safety and being on the outskirts or the fringes of the group is dangerous, 
then being the dead center of the group must be the most safe. Okay. Okay, that's the logic that is used. And that is what's building our society in the sense of, of social climbing and getting to the top and being in the middle and being the one who's in charge and all of that kind of stuff. But basically what it misses out on is, is that not only do you want to be the number one person in the middle of the group for the most safety, a whole lot of other people do too. And so it becomes competitive and it becomes a survival issue. But it's based upon stupidity that in fact the whole group is already safe. Yeah. So getting to the deeper middle of it is not more safe. It's actually more dangerous to be in the dead middle of the group because so many people want in the middle of the group. And that that whole point that I'm making here is politics. This is politics. I've just defined it. Is that it's safer in the middle of the group. I want to control. I want to be the guy who runs the place because I feel most safe there. Guess what? The one who is in charge is the one who is the most unsafe in reality. Jeff, he needs bodyguards. Mm -hmm. And he needs bodyguards, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) The king who is king because he is king and and he's king because he's the biggest, toughest dude there and he wants to be in charge. Guess what? He's the one who needs an army. Because he still feels unsafe. So basically what it's all about is, is that it's all based upon the self-preservation instinct and we go around doing things to try to feel safe. And we're doing all kinds of things to try to feel safe because we don't feel safe after we do this, that, and the other thing and we still feel unsafe. So that's what you've been doing. You've been picking up things, listening to others talk, trying to find a way of fitting in and everything like that. But after you begin to look at it, now you can say, wait a minute, I don't even know who I am. (laughs) Because in fact, the relationship to the herd is what defines who you are. Because if you take, for instance, a sheep or a cow as an individual, it's just a sheep or just a cow. The question, though, about personality is how do that particular sheep or that particular wildebeest or cow fit into its herd? So in our society, many, many times how we define ourselves is what we do or what kind of group we fit into. Yes. So our, the definition of who we are then oftentimes winds up being our job. So if you say, who are you? The answer is, well, I'm a carpenter or I'm an electrician or I'm defining myself according to the herd. Well, the herd is constantly in movement. And because of that, your relationship to the movement is constantly hurting, is constantly in motion. And so defining who we are begins to change over time. That in fact, uh, defining ourselves as something and then that something changes can sometimes bring on a great deal of consternation, doubts, worries, fears, etc. like that. That's why people will often go off the deep end, at least mentally, when they get fired from their job. 
because mm -hmm. not only do we lose the paycheck, but we think that we've lost our identity. Okay. Who am I? Okay, I'm I'm an unemployed engineer is not the same thing as I'm an engineer. <laughs> or I used to be an engineer, but the engineers didn't want me in their uh, nest. And so they threw me out. Okay, so it's a great big tragedy often when we get uh, get fired from a job and a few people begin, though, to recognize the benefit of that. The benefit of getting out of the herd is freedom from the herd. The question is whether it's freedom or danger. Because it's not necessarily dangerous for you to leave a herd. That was true 100,000, 500,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but you can leave herds. In fact, there's many, many sub herds and you don't have to necessarily need to belong to any particular one. But one thing that we know for sure, in fact, you've just mentioned it, that's the whole point of this conversation, is, is that on an individual level, we influence one another. That I influence you, you influence Bob, Bob influences you. All kinds of things happen with with because of our influence of, of one another, and we normally do that by sharing our views and our opinions and our feelings with other people. Okay. And, and the point about the feelings, if I feel a particular way, I want you to feel that same way. Many examples of that, and in fact, it's so um, uh, obvious and an evident there's a number of cliches in the English language to point that out. The example is misery loves company. <laughs> so if someone is miserable, they're going to invite someone else to be miserable. And so instead of going to a cheerful person and get cheered up, the miserable <laughs> person wants to make the cheerful person miserable. Yes, 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 yes. yes. The angry person wants to make the cheerful person angry. So if I'm angry at the bank, I want you to be angry at the bank, because if you're angry at the bank with me being angry at the bank, that justifies that it's OK for me to be angry at the bank. It's the bank's fault. They're the one to blame and I'm blameless. And if I can convince you of it, then it must be true. OK. All right. This is what we refer to as malicious gossip. Malicious gossip is when you're trying to sell your bad feelings to someone else to get them to feel bad also. There's a number of games that Eric Byrne uh, defined and one of them uh, is listed as let's you and him fight. In other words, I'm going to tell you all the problems about that guy over there. And get you to feel the way that I feel. About the guy over there so that I can get you to go argue and fight with him. OK, okay. now in in the teaching of the Buddha, they talk about it in the sense of division that you and I can talk about a third person and go away with compassionate good feelings about that person. 
or we can talk about a person and you uh, go away from that conversation, having changed your good feelings for that into anger and hostility and hate for that person because of a conversation that you've had with me. Okay, that means then that I am doing something to divide you with that other guy. And this is what the, uh, the Buddha refers to it as, is language or speech that divides friendships or breaks apart. So trash talking a third person is definitely what we would call um, malicious gossip. It's malicious because the intention is, is to get you into bad feelings about someone else. It is so common that, that the entire political party system is built upon that one thing. You, Mr. Voter, never mind how much you like me, the real issue of getting you to vote is to get you to hate those other guys over there. That if I can get you to to be uh, full of hate and full of fear about what they're going to do, you're much more likely to vote than if I just say, oh, if you vote, I'll give you a banana. That's that was tried a lot that, in fact, in the old days, that's what uh, um, election corruption was all about, was bribery or trying to buy votes, trying to get you to vote for me. Now politics is upside down from that when in fact real politics is actually I'm trying to get you to vote against my enemy. Okay, and we use malicious gossip and lies in order to do that. So when you buy somebody else's malicious lie about that political party and you turn and become this political party and you identify yourself with, say, being a Republican or a Democrat or a bozo or a, a, a liberal or something like that in some sort of political party, and we define ourselves as I'm a Republican, what that fails to understand is, is that I, I literally am not a Republican. I just merely heard language and viewpoints of negative stuff about someone else. And that's who defines who I am. Except that uh, if I go and talk to someone else, a third, a fourth or fifth person, and they say, oh, you've got it backwards, that that party is actually good and this one's bad. Maybe slowly over time, you'll actually reverse that. So now you're Republican and you turn Democrat. Now, which are you? Who are you? Are you a Democrat or are you? Oh, well, I used to be a Republican and now I'm a Democrat. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. But the question is, who are you underneath all of that? The answer is, how deep do we have to go? Because all it is is just layers and layers and layers and layers of stuff you've been told. All the way back to the way you were treated in diapers. (laughs) Okay, so that basically is who we are, is who we've been told to be. And we bought it. And you just figured that out. And you called me. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm giving you a little bit uh, more to it. 
to recognize that there's two issues about it. One is, is that uh, not only uh, is there the gossip or the bad news or the, uh, the game that's played of let's you and him fight, but also we've got to have a box to carry that stuff around in, and the box is the instincts. In other words, we are already pre-programmed to accept malicious gossip that we would rather hear malicious gossip because that helps define who we are. In journalism, it's long been known that if it bleeds, it leads. What does that mean? I don't know. You don't know what, have you ever heard that statement? If it bleeds, no. it leads. Have no. you heard that? You never heard that. Bleeds okay. from blood? If it bleeds, like you cut your arm oh. and you start to bleed. Okay, no, I never heard it. Okay, what that means is if it, if it leads, it bleeds, means that they want violence, gore, uh, and tragedy on the front page of the newspaper because that sells. If you put good news on the front of the newspaper, nobody bothers to buy the newspaper that day. And the journalists have known that for so long and for so many years, and it's taught so well in universities, that has become the press. That has become our news. So that we have about 1% to 10% of good news, followed by 90% bad news. <laughs> that in fact, you could say blah, blah, blah about some great big problem, but it's been fixed. But it didn't fix this big blah, blah, blah problem. And so now we're a whole bunch of blah, blah, blah problem one after another with a little bit of fiction there between. But we don't want to spend any time on good news because good news nobody wants to hear. We all want to hear bad news. Why is that? Why is it that we would rather hear bad news than good news? Well, I'd say that that's that's a way of controlling a way to control the masses too well they use that they do to control the masses that way but i ask you a deeper question why is it that humans like bad news better than good news because it makes us feel like we're doing things right like like aha that guy it happened to him not to me right i'm better than he is and so it helps the ego but there's something a little deeper than that <laughs> okay what's a little deeper than that is going back to the self-preservation instinct that in fact the way that you said it is is that oh if he's bad that means i'm good and that's part of the self-preservation instinct but the question is why do we like bad news as opposed to good news because well, i can learn what what not to do from that you're thinking logically you're thinking like a human think like a bug and you'll understand it okay the real reason why we're so interested in bad news is because we are interested in preserving our identity preserving ourselves, staying alive and therefore we want to know every dangerous thing there is in order to avoid it 
In other words, what I'm saying is, is that our propensity to be interested in bad news is instinctual, part of the self-preservation mechanism, that we actively go out looking for dangers. Because if we're not actually looking for dangers, one's going to grab us and kill us. This is an instinct that was grown up over many, many centuries, uh, actually many, many millennia, thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. We go right back into evolution that this has been there, that we're always on alert for danger. So when the child is born with these instincts, the kinds of things that we tend to remember were the big points the dangers, the difficulties that we had in life. And we also uh, listen to other people and hear all of their dangers because we're wanting to, let us say, learn from somebody else's mistakes. And so we're very interested in all the mistakes that people are making. But in fact, that's the study of history is the study of man's stupidity. And over time, we have been able as a society to, to, to repair many of those mistakes. But each individual one of us can. Each one of us in our own mind can come out of that instinct of looking for the negative, looking for the dangerous, because we find quite a lot of it. And because we do, we wind up being fearful and miserable all because of an instinct. And not only that, but you hear all of this garbage from other people that's dangerous, and that helps identify who we are. So now you're coming up and you're beginning to question that and say, who am I? And the answer is, is that, well, I'm not what I thought I was because all I thought I was was just something that I picked up from someone else, learned behavior. That's amazing, isn't it? That mostly who we are is learned behavior. Yeah. All right. This is probably uh, probably why the Buddha had second of uh, the first and second fetters in the way that he arranged them, because this is basically what we're talking about. The first fetter is personality view, and the second uh, fetter is our attachments to rights, rules, rituals, and the way things would be, uh, should be, which basically means all of the stuff with, that we've heard from the outside and taken in from the outside that we assume is part of my identity, but in fact it's not. Not only did it come from the outside, but it actually belongs back on the outside. It doesn't belong in here. But we start making that mistake as tender infants. When we're very, very young, we start making that mistake. Partly because if we don't do what we're told to do, when we're uh, not, not tender infants, tender infants are always, generally always treated with affection, kindness, nurturing. But when we get four or five years old, and now we're put to work, that the baby becomes mommy's little helper. Okay. All right. And so a change is made, and that change comes from the point of we're no longer 
nurturing and being nurtured. Now, we've got to be um, up to scratch. You've got to learn your ABCs. You've got to clean your room. You've got to do what you're told to do. You've got to put down your cell phone and do your homework. You've heard all of this before. All right. So all of that critical stuff, you hear that and you pick it up and you remember it because forgetting it can be dangerous. You do your homework. You don't want to do your homework, but you do your homework because you might be uh, uh, punished. So you're trying to avoid danger by doing the homework rather than doing the homework because you really like doing the homework. Mm -hmm. All right. And so we build up over a long, long period of time, a whole lot of rules, ways of doing things, ritualized behavior, social conventions, many, many things like that. And we take this on and become part of the culture. And that also becomes part of our identity. And then it's hard to see who am I? Am I who I am or, who, or am I what I've collected along the way? <laughs> and you can see how that really fits in in the sense that many people identify what, what they own what kind of material possessions they picked up along the way. And so we identify with my house and my car and my wife and my job and all of this other stuff that we picked up along the way that is there basically to help us feel safe and secure. But we don't. We don't wind up feeling safe and secure. Why is that? because of the instinct that is instinctively already programmed to look for dangers, to look for problems, to look for things to be avoided. And so this is kind of how we define who we are. So when we recognize it, that much of who we are is nothing but a set of, uh, of programs that have been learned, in other words, stuff that we've gotten from society, from other people. Plus, we have instincts based inside. The instincts about liking and not liking and wanting to be cared for and nurtured and all of that kind of stuff. And then a third quality of us is, is that we have abilities to actually see and make connections. Remember a uh, long time ago, uh, earlier in this talk, that the human mind was not designed to be a, uh, a uh, truth-finding machine, that in yeah. fact the human brain is much more of a pattern-matching or a pattern-finding machine. Yeah. That we make connections, we connect the dots. Yeah. We see this and then we see that and we make a connection and we see that over there and then we can draw a straight line through it and say these things are, are the same. This is what has led to our technology and this is also is what has led to our critical thinking that in fact in our society critical thinking is highly praised. Because the only other kind of thinking they think other than critical thinking is ignorant um instinctual behavior that has very little thinking with it we just go along to get along we just go with the flow or we just go with what seems to be natural and that natural 
is always looking for the dangers and, and remembering the dangers. As a side point, that means that when we begin to reminisce and start to thinking about our past, we may find something worth reminiscing for that is nice, but the next thought and thought moment may be associated with that. And we remember like um, uh, a particular house that I used to live in. I look out uh, of that window in my mind's eye to, to look out the window of that house and I see the beautiful yard. But then the next thought is, oh, I've got to go cut that yard. <laughs> or I see a, 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 a beautiful fall scene where there's leaves all over the ground and everything is so beautiful. And then the next thought is, I've got to go rake those leaves. And so we immediately go in our mind's eye from a, um, a pleasurable memory into a painful memory. They're connected together. Memories are like that. This is part of the reason why the Buddha says, don't dwell too much in the past. Let's stay in the present moment and let's stay in the present moment with the understanding that we don't have to go looking for dangers and problems anymore. That in fact, we're going to change who we are by consciously deciding that instead we're going to begin to look for what's real and what's useful, valuable, and wholesome. All along, we have been trained by our society to go around looking for the problems, looking for the unwholesome, looking for what could go wrong. And then we spread that through gossip so that I can convince other people to hate the same things that I hate. And then they hate those two, but they don't really know why. And so when you ask them, all they can come up with is the hearsay that they've heard before. They don't have any real evidence of their own. That yeah. in fact, many, many Republicans will be very, very vocal at how much they hate the Democrats and Biden and all of that kind of stuff. And they've never been around Biden. They don't know him at all. Yeah. All they have, all they have is just hearsay. Okay, so that means now that from now on that when you hear people talking, be very careful for two things. One is to recognize when they're talking, is it wholesome or is it unwholesome? Okay. That's the better question to ask rather than is it true or not? that whether it's true or not may not be relevant. Mm -hmm. It may not be relevant. And in fact, you could go so far as to say uh, someone uh, writes an email explaining why he hates Mr. B. Except that everything that he says is not evidence that he has directly. It's stuff that he's heard from other people. And so they don't really have any real reason to hate the guy themselves other than they've been associated with other people who do. Yeah. Now we're getting around to the to the understanding of this means that we need to be more careful with who we associate with. 
that I've talked to people about this a lot. In fact, um, one of the ways of mentioning it is talking about it in the sense of guilt by association. Okay. Guilt by association, that we become guilty of doing the things that the people who do them do. Why? Because we start doing those things because we're associating with those people. So if you live in a bar and are around alcoholics, you're much more likely to become an alcoholic than if you stay in a convent. <laughs> okay. Right? This is also why uh, when a young man uh, either is drafted or joins the army, he does not army during the day at a job and stays at home at night. They know the army, they want him 100%. He's ours now. We want him all days, 24-7. He sleeps with the DI and uh, the drill instructor in his face. He wakes up with the drill instructor yelling at him and he goes all day being torn down. We don't want that kid going home and getting nourished at, at home. They want him completely destroyed. All right, so that's another example. A third example would be uh, when a young man gets married, many of them will have a, um, a bachelor's party. Generally, what the bachelor's party is all about is a goodbye. Because once this guy gets married, he's not going to be associating with all of his old buddies so much anymore. He's going to be finding new friends, possibly married men or places he can take his wife to. All right. And so by getting married, he changes his whole social network. When you join the army, you change your whole social network. When you are an alcoholic and you join AA, they want you to stop associating with alcoholics and start associating with the AA people, right? This is what we mean by guilt association, and a lot of people can understand that, but they don't understand the deep power of it. And the power of it is because it's instinctual. We do this instinctually. We associate and then become like the people in the group that we're in. That's why engineers are so much like engineers. <laughs> That's why nerds are so much like nerds. It's not just that it's uh, their own personality. No, they learned that. Yeah. And in fact, a nerd, a, a kid who is a nerd by the age of 10 or 11, most likely is because he's associating with someone in his family that, that was an older nerd. Yeah. So this is very, very profound. It's also in the point that if we hear malicious gossip about someone, when someone else is playing the game with us so that they want us to go fight with him, let's you and him fight, okay? If we're the you in there, then most likely, because we've heard that about him, we'll go say that about him to yet another person. We'll go start to play that game. We'll go and play, let you and him fight. And so now we've got a whole crowd of people that wants to have a fight against one guy. We've begun to ostracize him, okay? This back to the whole point about the scapegoat. This is how the scapegoat gets started is because of malicious gossip that spreads and we spread it. 
Why do we spread it? We don't even care if it's true or not. We spread it because it's delicious. Malicious gossiping about someone is delicious and we like it without recognizing how much danger, how much damage there is into it. So for this reason, it's even more important now for us to begin to understand and realize why it's so important to socialize with and make friends with people who do not engage in that kind of stuff. We want to deal with wise people. We want to live around and stay around nobles. This is what in Buddhism, this is what the Sangha is all about. The Sangha is for us to deal with other people in a wholesome way. And it's their intention to deal with you and other people in a wholesome way. To where most society is, is normally we deal with this, that, and the other in unwholesome, uh, malicious, gossipy ways. So now our gossip is going to be uh, noble gossip in the sense that when we talk about a third person, we're going to be talking about it in the sense of doing him good, helping him to understand. We want to not push him out of our community and make him a scapegoat. We want to bring him back into our community if he will come. This is actually uh, something that I've seen in the sutta. Someone asked me about that recently in the sense of in this kind of situation, what would the Buddha do? And so I started reminiscing and reflecting upon some of the suttas and I came up with six different suttas. And the surprise was is that uh, the Buddha uses these moments as a teaching opportunity, but not to teach the offender but to teach the Sangha, that's the intention, is, is to keep the Sangha together. Whether this individual wants to rejoin or leave the Sangha is up to him, but the Buddha's teaching is generally for the Sangha, not for the individual. To where if you look in school, uh, uh, they... It, let us say somebody pulls the fire alarm or somebody sets a little fire in a trash can or somebody does this, that, and the other thing. And now the school officials, they are intent on finding who did that. A much superior way would to bring that fire trash can into the classroom and have it become a teachable moment for the whole class. Never mind which person in the class did that. Everybody can learn. Yeah. Okay. That's the way of the Buddha, and I've seen that in several suttas. Okay. It's in the Kansambian Sutta, it's in number 22, it's in number 20, uh, number 38, and several places. Now, there are other suttas where um, the Buddha directly confronts a particular monk. One of those is his own son. That the, the story is, is that Rahula, his son, uh, went into the village at the wrong time of the day and went into a, um, a business. And he was seen there. And so uh, the next thing is, is that I don't know the details of that. I don't remember them. But the next thing is the Buddha is asking him, oh, where have you been? And then Rahula lied to him. Okay. And so this is the teaching about lying. 
is this sutta. And uh, basically, uh, this happened over the course of the Buddha finishing his meal. And so after he's finished his meal, he's got the bowl. So he uses the bowl as an example. And the bowl's example is, is that one who lies is like the leftovers. It's not the meal, it's what you don't eat. And you throw that out. And then you wash the bowl. Uh, you could call that actually dishwater, except that it's got no soap, but it's cleaning the bowl. And then the Buddha says that one who lies is not even worth the droppings out of the bowl. It's not even worth dishwater. Okay, this is actually a pretty excellent lesson. And the thing that's really interesting in this case is, is that Rahula got it. And it was a great, great uh, lesson for him to recognize that when you lie, it's because truth is there. If you lie, someone's eventually going to see the distinction between what you said and what is real. That, uh, and we can hear that in all kinds of places in our society, like, oh, what a web we weave when first we try to deceive. Why? Because we're lying about something. We have to keep lying about it. And we have to keep making up stories to make that lie fit in with the truth. And we wind up not even remembering all the lies we've told that were all based on one lie. This then means that now the person who has been lying and is now trying to cover up his lies, he feels bad. He feels very fearful that he's going to get caught with a lie that he told. Even if it was really little, whatever mm -hmm. lie it was. So this is a, an excellent teaching then about how we talk to other people because we recognize, and in fact, if we can see it this way, the the messiest, worst part of my life, I learned from other people. Because I listened to them when they were telling me about the worst part of their life. <laughs> so, this means that we need to start being careful in the other direction. To be careful with how, how we talk, what we say to other people, because we're beginning to recognize Sometimes that we have a great detrimental influence on people when, in fact, our uh, malicious gossip was intended to be uh, benign and it wound up being cancerous. And so uh, we want to start to notice that in both directions, both when people talk to you, how much influence do you let them have upon you? and also to refrain upon having much influence over other people, especially if it's not wholesome. If it's, if it's wholesome, then, and, and that it's agreeable for both people, like the conversation that we're having right now is almost completely wholesome. Because we're talking about the facts and the way things are, giving you some insights and waking up and all of that kind of stuff. Or I could be telling you, about how bad those people are over there. I mean, you don't believe how bad those guys were. I mean, they did this, that, and the other thing, and they messed this up, and they messed that up, and then they blamed it all on me. <laughs> how many conversations go that way? A lot. A lot. 
Why? Because if I feel this way, I've got to justify how bad I feel about what they've done. And so if I can get you to feel the way that I do, then I justify the bad feelings that I've had because, look, you feel the same way that I do about them. Or in fact, the reality is I just talked you into it. And I used your instinctual uh, mechanisms to do that, because if you had been using your wisdom, you would have had nothing to do with it. It was only because it fits into instinct. Oh, we do want to know everything that's wrong about other people. They may be dangerous. I've got to protect myself, you know. So this is why we go for the negative naturally. We have a natural propendency for the unwholesome. And we have a natural um, inclination to identify with the unwholesome as in the sense of that's me. And almost all of it is learned from the other people. That there are very, very few new thoughts. Almost all of them, the same old thing over and over and over again. Ain't it awful about what they did? So here's where we can use this because uh, you could think of Well, what does any of this have to do with meditation practice? The answer is just the whole point of meditation. And it's the point of meditation in both areas in the sense of when we're in seclusion and down and all by ourselves, what kind of thoughts are we going to have? Are we going to have thoughts about other people? If they are of other people, are they going to be meta, wholesome thoughts? Are we well-wishing them? Or are we trashing them in our own mind? So that's one part of it is, is that when we're in seclusion, are we going to have wholesome thoughts about it or are we going to have unwholesome thoughts about it? Oh, wholesome. And we start tracking, oh, I'm going to have wholesome thoughts. That we're all in this together, that we're in a herd and we all have the same instinctual programming. Okay. And so we're basically all the same. Because we have all the same basic programming, which means that anything that you hear from someone, you're going to likely pick it up because it fits into the same box, the instinctual box, that it fit in for him. This is where wisdom comes in. To recognize that, hey, we can live a more wholesome life. We do not have to live by instincts. We do not have to live in an unwholesome world that is created by self-preservation, trying to protect ourselves from dangers. The reality is, is there's no danger. (laughs) The reality is that we can be friends. We don't have to be enemies. We don't have to be judgment. We can be friends with each other. So that's one of them. Then on the other side is, is that when we go out into the world, We can now start to avoid other people's malicious gossip because that's not who you are anyway. Now. That you could see it before you just picked that stuff up. And thought it was you. 
Gotcha. Now you recognize, oh no, if I in fact take away everything, all the bad advice and all the bad feelings that I had learned throughout my entire life from all of those people, there'd not be much left in me. <laughs> not much of me here. <laughs> Almost all of it is just a collection of junk that's piled up over the years that I cling to. And when I'm clinging to this stuff, this is what the Buddha calls Silabhata Paramasa. That's the second fetter, attachments to the way things that should be. Well, how, thing, how should things be? Well, they should be the way that I was told they should be. Mm-hmm. There's rules here, you know. Well, who made the rules? Well, somebody made rules, and they're <laughs> here's the rules. But when we can change those rules, we can begin to recognize that almost all the rules are designed to um, to do one thing of, let us say, solve this problem. But there's almost always collateral damage. What in laws we call loopholes. Yeah. That there's always a way around it. You cannot make one great big solid law that fits all occasions and all times for all people. But you can make a law for yourself that works for you all the time. And that is the one rule that the Buddha gives, which is the entire teaching of the Buddha. And that is in this moment, dukkha, dukkha naroda. In this moment, if there is dukkha, let's come out of it and be in the state of Sukha at this particular moment. So when we're thinking of gossip, negative gossip thoughts, the right thing to do is to turn that around to wholesome thought. Oh, he's my friend. I don't have to think negative of him. Yeah, he was out gossiping about me, but he's still my friend. I still love him. I may lose him as a friend because he's already been gossiped into the other column, but at least I can teach the students. Don't be susceptible to outside gossip because it will destroy your friendships. You will always be able to find someone who is willing to maliciously gossip to you about how bad one of your friends are. If you listen to that, you will lose your friends. That's a major, major teaching is to be careful about listening to the unwholesome thoughts and and speech of other people. But you can only become good at that when you've already gotten it to the point that you're really good at seeing your own unwholesome thoughts. Yes, okay. So recognizing that I don't need to to make them part of myself, like, like, okay. (laughs) See, yeah, have a nice day. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly so, but that's not who I am. I don't know who I am yet. If I ever figure it out, it'll change. <laughs> and then I'll be wrong. Okay. It's better just to say it, well, it's a moving target. We haven't figured that out yet, but that's okay because we've got enough. Yeah. We've got enough. <laughs> okay. So. This is how we're going to work with it. We're going to recognize that everything that you've ever heard from anyone is only going to make you feel bad. So let's not talk about all the stuff that we've heard from in the past and let's start looking at 
how can we have wholesome thoughts right now? Loving, okay. kind, wholesome thoughts, nurturing thoughts for myself. Boy, I'm really glad I don't have to uh, uh, gossip right now. Oh, I'm glad that I don't have to have ill, ill will and ill feeling thoughts about that guy. I can have wholesome, enjoyable thoughts about him also, or better. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you got it. I, I, <laughs> the response that you're showing me right now is is very gratifying. I like it when I can get students. Oh, I got it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I've been feeling like right now I have I have a blockage that I don't know nothing about it, but like I'm scared to be too happy. Okay. Like, like, just like that. Like, I'm too scared to be happy. Just, because I think that if people see me too happy, they're Perhaps. gonna drop me in an asylum and stuff like that. Perhaps there is something in there that tells you that you're not supposed to be happy. I mean, look at all of the many hundreds of thou perhaps thousands of people that you've dealt with that gave you unhappiness. Yeah, there are a lot. Yeah, okay. So, um, what we can talk about then in, in this sense is, is that you can start to have wholesome thoughts in the sense of permission that is actually okay for you to be happy. You can't, you have my permission to be happy. You can go ahead and be happy. Even though you're going to be dealing with a whole lot of people who are not happy. Okay. And they will sometimes even try to convince you how bad things are so that you will be unhappy the way they are. So that means that you have to not only have permission, you have to have some potency and some power in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have to have some some uh, uh, some can do attitude. Okay, some right attitude. We can get that. We can get some mojo going here. We can actually maintain our happiness. Yeah. One way of talking about it, uh, you've probably heard of Mary Poppins in the song, A Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Medicine Go Down. No. <laughs> yeah, it's a song. A spoonful of uh, sugar helps the medicine go down. That's especially true uh, three or four hundred years ago when medicine always was very bitter and nobody wanted to take their medicine. Okay. Okay. So now it's the same way. People don't want to hear it unless you can make it joyful. And so if you are joyful, you can actually then give other people a, a, a teaspoonful of sugar. Unfortunately, someone who is miserable, a teaspoon is not going to be enough. You have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And, doing it and, doing it and slowly, slowly it starts to mound and then you can turn because they're already in a deep habit of pity party. They're yeah. already in the habit of um, malicious gossip and, and all of that. 
So that means that you have to have the power. You can't deliver the sugar with a teaspoon. You've got to use a shovel. <laughs> okay. You need a shovel of joy. You need some power here. You need to be able to maintain your happiness, even in the face of the criticism of, oh, you're too happy. Yeah. All right. The next part of that is, is that there's also an issue of that it is really not dangerous to be happy. That the whole point about being miserable is uh, conflict and conflict avoidance because of fear of the unknown and the fears of danger. So we also have to point out that it's actually safe to be happy. It's okay to that be It's happy. not dangerous. That you do have the protection of the happiness. You do have the protection of wisdom. So you have permission, protection, and the power. Okay. Yeah. All you have to do is remember. Sati. To remember, you don't have to you don't have to go downhill. You can park yourself right where you are. You're okay. Okay. It's funny about that. You you've heard of the, the word gravity and its associated word grave. And we use concepts like heavy. All right. And so if we think of gravity as a natural force, then things naturally roll downhill. We naturally take our mind into the gutter. We naturally go to the lowest common denominator. We naturally go into danger. It's part of the nature that we have. That means that we're going to have to take the effort to come out of that. We have to have the effort to resist that gravity. Okay. There's where the power comes from. That you, every thought will come, and that the likelihood of that thought just on, on average, the next thought that you'll have will probably be an unwholesome thought. Why? Because we're naturally drawn towards the bottom. We're naturally pulled down. So we have to have the effort of never mind. I can handle that. Okay. Never mind. I can do this. <laughs> it's exciting. It, it it really is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you can do this. You can gain that attitude of I can handle this. I can do this. I do yeah. not have to listen to all the garbage I've heard my whole life. I can <laughs> create my own paradise instead. Okay. Oh, well, this has been a really good chat. I've really enjoyed this, and I've really watched the transformation that you've gone through in the tower. This has been really great. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, let's finish this now, and we'll talk later. Go out okay. and, and do your practice. Go and practice in both cases. The both cases is one when you're alone because that's when you really need to get the mind straightened out. But you need yeah. to get it well enough straightened out so when you go back into the world, you can deal with all the negativity that they're going to throw at you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Excellent. <laughs> well, we'll see you soon. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Thank you, Tamara, too.
Have a great day. See you. You too. Have a good moment. Thank you. See you.